Welcome back to DevCast with me, uh, Doug Kerling, as usual. Today, I want to discuss a really interesting book that I found a couple of weeks ago called Beyond Legacy Code. And I'm so fortunate to have the author on the, uh, at this podcast with me, David Bernstein. So very welcome, David. Thank you, Dag. And I'm very fortunate to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank you. Wow, I, I'm I'm flushing here, <laughs> or do you, you call it flushing, or you know what I mean? Okay, yes. David, who are you first? Um, well, let's see. I'm um, I'm a you're guy. The same, uh, same age as me, so you're yeah um, young, which means that we're old guys. Yeah. We've been around in in the industry. In fact, I I think I saw something just last night. Um, They said the percentage of people in their, I'm, I'm 55 years old, mm -hmm. so the percentage of people in their 50s in the software industry, we're 3% of the, okay. of the workforce. Okay. <laughs> so we're three percenters. Okay, I thought it was more, and it will, of course, be more uh, in the years to come. Yes, indeed it will. Mm -hmm. yes. So what's your expertise? You've been in the agile moment for very long, I understand. Yeah, well, I've been a software developer for most of my life. Oh, uh -huh. Right now, I'm going on my almost 30 years as a professional developer. Mm -hmm. And I've been in the Agile movement um, for, since, the early, since the early 2000s, you know, 2002, 2004, something like that. Um, I, and I, I definitely fell in love with the movement immediately because it addressed a lot of the issues that I have been facing, both as a developer and uh, also as a trainer. Um, I've trained a lot of software developers in my career. I, I started, like you, as, as a coder. And in fact, we were just talking um, about your first language, BASIC, was actually one of my first languages as well. I, I built a, um, a foreign exchange accounting system for banks back in, this is circa 1980. 485 time frame okay uh, and that became a sort of the de facto standard for bank accounting this is wholesale banks banks that that only do banking with other banks um, do you know and, uh, which code that you have uh, written that are still in use today how old it is oh interesting yeah in fact and you know you think Uh, certainly, as a developer, when you're writing your code, you're thinking, oh, well, this is not going to last very long. So that code, um, particularly that code that was written almost 30 years ago, uh, is still in operation today. Now, it's it's taken a kind of a different form and it's been rewritten, I'm sure, several times. But a lot of the original algorithms, not just for the banking stuff, but um, I worked in the econometrics field. I worked in many, many other fields, um, worked built a lot of software. And a lot of that you'd think would be dead by now, but it's surprisingly it's not. Mm. So maybe we as individuals don't have immortality, but um, surprisingly, a lot of our code does, it seems. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this is why I asked, because your, your title on your book is Beyond Legacy Code. And sometimes you say legacy is the same as old code. But when I read your book, you, the legacy, legacy code and old code is, is not always the same. So what, what's legacy code and why have you written the book? Oh, there's great questions. And let me, well, I'll address the first one first and then we'll go to the next one. So, um, and a lot of people have different definitions for legacy code. Um, in fact, recently, uh, an associate of mine just gave me a new definition of legacy code, which is uh, code that's being used. And I think that there is a lot of truth in that. 
because if it's old code that has no purpose, no one's using it. No one cares. It's only the code that we really depend on, that we really you know, need, that's old, that may be a little bit harder to work with, that we kind of consider legacy code. Um, I was incredibly fortunate to have Ward Cunningham write the forward to, to my book. And I just want to read you the first sentence of his forward because I just, I love it. He says, a legacy is the part of the dead that remains influential. And, okay. Uh. <laughs> and I think that's true. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, Michael Feathers also has um, a couple of different definitions of legacy code. Uh, I want to bring kind of his his awareness into into our conversation because he wrote an amazing book called Working Effectively with Legacy Code. And it's a very different book than mine um, just because he's really talking about how to work with legacy code and, and is full of great techniques. And my book is really more about how to not get there in the first place. Yeah, and I thought when, when I started reading your book, I thought it was more like the, the, the Feathers book. Than, uh, but it, is it a good, this is a good book. And, and I, especially when I talk about what, what I meant by old code uh, versus legacy code, that old code could be not legacy, legacy if you use your principles and your practices. Yes. It's only yes. that it's old, but it's still not legacy. It's not a, a messy code. It's not a spaghetti code and so on. It could just be a code that have some years. It, it was developed some years ago. Yes. Do you understand yes. the difference? Oh, indeed. Absolutely. Mm. In mm. fact, which, which you're leading right into my definition of legacy code. Mm. But, but first, I want to just mention one other uh, sort of the common definition that, that Michael really talks about in his book, which is code without tests. He, he describes legacy code as any code without unit tests, uh, even if we wrote it yesterday, because he believes that tests give us a great deal of confidence in our code. And I fully agree with him. Um, so to me, legacy code is really code that we have no confidence in, code without confidence. Uh, and that's when we're scared to really touch it. And, you know, this is a psychological thing, you know. Uh, sort of a sort of a psychological definition, but but we shouldn't discount that, because if we're scared to touch something, we won't. Now I, I think that that's one what uh, uh, what what you say when you when you are a software developer is the first lesson you learn that don't touch the old code. <laughs> 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 that's the last uh, thing you should do. Yes. Yeah. And and. Why is that the case? Why why do we live in a world where we're scared of touching old code? It's so bridal. It's so so, so easy to to make it break. Yes. Yeah. Now so, is that a characteristic of code itself, or the characteristic of kind of maybe the way we build code? Well, I hope it's uh, the way we build code because otherwise it's a very scary. <laughs> To have all our society rely on brittle code or, or that code that is very buggy and so on. Yes, it's really yes. a scary thought. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I truly believe it's the way we build the code that makes it brittle and that there are alternatives. I, I know teams that build code that are much more resilient than average code. And it has to do a lot with really understanding, well, I think a couple of things. One is really what good code looks like. And that's why I focus the book really on, on talking about what good code is about. Because in order to clean up code into something better, we have to know what that something better really is. So I spend the majority of the book looking at what, what is good code. And, um, 
And I think also we have to understand the nature of change and the kind of changes that our users want and how we can build that into the software we build. And if we understand these things, I think we can build more resilient software. I really like your um, what you say in the beginning of the book. It's not my job to find the errors. It's my job to create them. <laughs> That's kind of the attitude that sometimes we <laughs> developers take. Yeah. Uh, so. And I think that the, the challenge is really that, that the process that we have created for ourselves for, for building software has some issues with it, has some real problems with it. And and, let's, let's, yeah. yeah, okay, David. No, no, on. please go ahead. And we can return to this because uh, I have a lot to say on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. But I, I really want to be more uh, of a... Uh, well, uh, I think we have talked about the Agile movement. We have talked about the TDD for over 10 years. We have talked about Scrum boards and Lean and so on. But has anything really changed? You're talking about the chaos uh, uh, study and so on. And it, it's not so different now compared to 10 years ago, how a project fails and so on. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the chaos study and, and other, other studies as well, the failure rate is pretty much consistent at 20 to 25 percent of all projects. And failure rates, are, we, we can easily determine what that is, right? Because a project just is canceled. Success, challenge projects, those are much harder to really classify. In fact, I have a big problem with what is the Standish Group's definition of success, it's yeah, not, you you don't like that because it uh, it's not the success a, cust a customer success. It's more that you get the software out of the door. Yeah, yeah, and that it's useful, right? Mm. That it's that it's being used. Mm. But the success, you know, how Standish defines success in 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 their study, which is um, you know, uh, with all the features and functions functionality that was originally specified on time and on budget, and that really is not a function of a successful software project. It's a function of a successful guess of an estimate before the software project really begins. So, so um, we talk about the, the Agile moment and everyone knows about Scrum and they should use Scrum and they should use daily stand-ups and they should use pair programming and they should use uh, they should not do any design and they should just be happy and so on. But do it work in our industry? Has I, anything changed? I, well, I think that change happens on a very slow scale. <laughs> in, in an industry that changes so radically fast like ours, there is change. But, you know, it happens really, really slowly. Imagine what, how, how old is our industry now? You know, what would you say? 50 years? Maybe? Uh, in the beginning of the 60s or in the, something like that. What? But uh, that world was so radically different than the world we live in today. And so almost everything that was important to us then is not important to us now. But anyway, you, 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 you and you, I, hmm? yeah. And you say that we, we still use the same compilers, the same uh, uh, thinking and so on still. In a lot of ways, we still do. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's also clouded by the, the very constrained systems that we lived in back then. You know, you, you and I, we were both developers, you know, three decades ago. And back then, you had to be really, really concerned about resources because you'd run out of memory. You'd run out, you, everything would be too slow. Yeah. And so you focused, you know, about 
on performance at all costs back then. Performance is still important today, but it's not the only thing that's important. And we still, if these things are at odds with each other, like maintainability versus performance, then where do we find that happy balance? So we're constantly in a balancing state as developers. That's our job is to balance all of the issues and come up with the best choices possible. But one thing that also has changed uh, between the 60s and now that 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 we have so much more power, not only power in the machines, uh, we have power as a software developer because everything in the society is using software now. Yes. So we have, much, you know, the the Spider-Man uh, uh, quotation: "With much power come much responsibility." Yes, that actually I believe was Winston Churchill who said okay. that initially. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That's okay. Um, so that's yes. uh, that's very different from uh, from the sixties when it just was small programs and maybe the space shuttle or uh, the, the rocket or what you said, but yes. it was not so so in in uh, common in the in the world. It was in the sixties that the digital chief said that you only need ten computers in the world, or something <laughs> right. like that. Yeah, right. So much has yeah, changed. Yeah, whoever will need one. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so what do you think then? You, 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 you have a solution, and you have a vision, and you have a hope in the in the book, and that that's, I really like that. So, so we should not be despaired here now in the beginning of the podcast. Indeed, I, I, I do have some answers, and I'm very excited about that, and that's really why I wrote the book is to share that. But I don't have all the answers. I don't think any of us do, and I love the journey. It's a very exciting journey. Think about it, you know, like we're in a new industry and what was architecture like in its 50th year? You know, I mean, there, there's a lot of trial and error that went into building buildings and we're kind of in the trial and error phase. And there's good news and bad news about that. Yes, sure. It's frustrating and challenging. But at the same time, we get to be the pioneers. We get to be the shoulders in which future generations can stand on. Yeah. And I think that's a very, very exciting thing. It, it, it attracts certain kind of people to our industry. And one thing I really enjoy uh, what you say in the, in the beginning of the book is that you acknowledge that uh, this a software developer is a very creative person. Because yes. for me, uh, to be a software developer has always been to be uh, like a painter or something like that, you, that you create something from nothing. Yes, and we yes. really need to 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 manage the, this creative stuff in a, some kind of process. Yes, yeah. that supports our creativity, that allows it to happen, which is kind of interesting, right? Because the typical kind of processes, especially the processes that we built around the industrial revolution, are not about creativity. They're about performing a task over and over consistently. They're almost the opposite of what we software developers have to do. And I, I love that you brought up the creative aspect because I feel that that's really, really true. Obviously, there's many layers to being a, a good professional software developer. And certainly you and I and all of us know that you know we need to have a great deal of discipline and focus just to be able to start to write a computer program. But really, honestly, what we're, I think, realizing is it's not enough. We, we need to also be able to bring in that creative side. And... Yeah, I really look at like kind of the way we think in two different modalities. On one hand, we need to dissect things, break things apart, 
see the distinctions between things. And that's really, really important to have a very, you know, disciplined approach. But on the other hand, we have to do almost the exact opposite. We have to see, we have to integrate and see the connection between different ideas so that we can form the right abstractions in our code and collapse redundancy. And this is a completely different way of thinking than the sort of, you know, sort of logical analytical side, and is absolutely paramount to writing good maintainable code. And so here's go ahead. I'm sorry. I, no, no. I get on a okay. I get on a rant. Yeah, that, that's that's good. <laughs> I really enjoy it. So, but the, uh, my understanding is uh, from what you say is that you you make a difference between practices and principles. And uh, for me, the, this is very important. So can you could you talk about that because that's part of your solution I think to to our current problem in in our business. Certainly. Yes. And it kind of also ties back into your second question which is why did I write the book in the first place? So what I noticed was the agile movement has really really taken off. Um but when you go to a lot of companies and I'm in a position where I get to go to many many different companies and see in the last few years it's been mostly in the US but but in the past it's been around the world as well sort of see what developers are doing what companies are doing and i noticed that when they're doing agile a lot of organizations are doing the easier practices so they do stand up meetings and they do iterations but they don't do a lot of the technical practices and as a result they're not really getting the huge benefit if we look at the data and you know the data is really actually kind of hard to look at because there's not really a lot of good studies in our industry but it kind of indicates that we're about twice as good as we were you know 20 years ago before the agile movement really took hold and we weren't very good at all back then so we're twice as good which is still not super great the odds are still against us that a project will succeed i mean it, you know again how do we define success well that we could talk about also so i think that it, a lot of the reasons that we're not doing really excellently with agile that we're not getting the results universally that a lot of the original authors of the agile manifesto have gotten is that we're not doing a lot of the technical practices and if you look at every single one of the original authors of the agile manifesto on the agilemanifesto.org site you'll see that they're all developers they're all coders they're all highly technical individuals so agile is really you know uh, about software development written and created by software developers for software developers and somehow it became a management process and it's great that it's a management process and now it's been reaching out outside of the software industry into many many other fields and that's great too but i really wanted to bring the focus back to some of the core technical practices that these people came up with that are so valuable so really it's not just knowing what the practices are but knowing why they're valuable and kind of how they work and so i really focus on the principles behind the practices and i know that the subtitle of the book is nine practices to extend the life and value of your software and i talk about actually many more practices than just nine but i also talk about them in the context of the principles that underlie them and i wanted to write this book in such a way that it was understandable and valuable to not only us software developers but also to managers and even our non-technical stakeholders because they really have to understand why we feel that these technical practices are important 
and why code quality matters. And I think that code software is so fundamentally different than other things that a lot of people who don't live in software, who don't have the background in software, don't really understand these things. So I wanted to talk about the, the purpose behind the practices, and that's really the focus of the book. So it's, it's yeah. something a manager could read, but it's also something as a software developer can find value in. My, my my wife is a software developer. When she she me, meets uh, my my father every time, my father say, "Are you are you not finished with the program yet?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, he has said that for ten years now, or something like that. <laughs> And uh, what you what I mean by that is that, that he doesn't understand the software process, And yes. so on. Uh, so I'm completely right. And. This uh, ties into, I think, that, that we all know these practices that are good, but we don't do them anyway. It's easy to do the stand-ups. It's easy to do uh, maybe the Scrum board or the Kanban board or something like that. But it's much harder to do TDD. It's much harder to do pair programming and such stuff. Because we, we know it, but not in our heart, only in our heads. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think that's, Which is, that's what you mean by your book, when, uh, what you want to, to make the, 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 the journey from the, from the head to the heart. Yes. Oh, I, I kind of really like how you put it. I don't really talk about it in those terms very often, but it truly is kind of the way I think about it. And the reason is, is that, it, and, and study after study in psychology has proven this, that we make decisions from our emotions, not from our intellect. So, We'll know intellectually the right thing to do in life sometimes, but we may not do it because we don't have emotional connection to it. So that's kind of, I wrote the book to be engaging to the reader. I used a lot of techniques from uh, narrative nonfiction and storytelling so that it was engaging and interesting and energizing to read this book. Uh, because just giving you the facts wouldn't change the way you think about things. No, And I have already read uh, many books about the facts. Yes, yeah. So, so I think you, you had done a good, really good job. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> should, should, uh, is it okay, David, we to talk about a bit about the, the nine practices? Uh, oh, we, we shouldn't maybe talk about all of them, but uh, some of them maybe. Sure. If it's okay sure. for you. Yeah. What 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 do you think is uh, the most important practice? Is it the 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 number one practice or is it some other practice? Uh, should should you just yeah. say them very 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 brief? What's the nine practices are in your book? Sure, sure. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. And the nine practices I actually cover in part two of the book. So I want to also mention there is the first part of the book. The first part of the book I call the legacy code crisis, and it's really that some of the challenges that we're facing with our existing approach to software development. And you and I, we just talked about some of those things, but I go into a lot more detail. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of developers say, yeah, yeah, I already know this stuff. And then they read that first part and go, oh, I didn't know it was really that bad. <laughs> so, you know, it also contextualizes the problem a little bit differently. And I think it justifies the reason for us to really rethink how we're developing software, which is what I'm calling, what I'm, what I'm trying to do in the book. So that's why I wrote part one was to, you know, sort of provide a context for the, the rest of the book. But then part two talks about these nine practices. So I'll tell you what the nine practices are, and then you can pick whichever ones you want. We can go into more detail. The first practice is called say what 
why and for whom before how. And this is really kind of the uh, talking about the way we think and the way we communicate. Because, you know, when we use spoken language, we talk in terms of our own experience, in terms of implementation. So it's very typical for uh, requirements for what we need to be built to be, first of all, created by a, a, a BA or somebody who doesn't have good coding experience. And um, that it's more or less like a narrative. We've all read specifications. And it says, you know, well, the system will do this and it'll do that. And it, it sort of describes things procedurally because that's how we talk about things through natural language. But software development um, doesn't necessarily have to exclusively be procedural. We've invented all sorts of paradigms for writing code, including object-oriented, which doesn't create behavior through logic. Good object-oriented programs create behavior through the interaction and relationship between objects. And, you know, think of the Gang of Four design patterns. Almost all of the design patterns do this. And, and I think it's really, it really, yeah. a really good um, um, uh, thing yet that you have a book. It's uh, uh, software development is no longer about telling the co computer to do this or that. It's about creating a world in which the computer is compelling to do things based on the interaction of the objects involved. Yes. I really think yes. that's really great. That you, it's, it's much uh, more complex to, to write programs now than it was before. When I wrote a uh, program in, in DOS, I, I had the, the whole computer for myself. Yeah. Now yes. we, we interact, as you say, with, with uh, so much stuff in, in our code. And, of course, when we have bigger system between our servers and so on. But didn't you feel 30 years ago like, oh, hum, this is so boring. I mean, yeah, not, you know, not many people know how to program computers, but, but if they were to try, it's just super easy. Yeah. Now it's become challenging because the challenge, like you say, is not to make the computer do something. It's to write code in such a way that it truly, clearly communicates the intent of what we're trying to do to other programmers. Yeah. And yeah. that is where the challenge comes in. Seeing, making distinctions is not, not hard at all. Making connections, seeing how different things are the same, that's the creative part. That's the, almost the very definition of creativity and intelligence, our ability to abstract. And that's what we need to do to build maintainable code. So, that's also the fun part as, yeah. of being a software developer, I think, because it's more challenging. Mm. And that's what's really good because I, I – you're – a critique from a book, I don't see that you talk about the fun part, how to, it should be fun to be a software developer. So I think you should have a little bit more about the fun part. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, as a, as the motivation. It's, it's highly satisfying when yeah. we do that. Yeah, yeah. So the, the first practice is about uh, requirements and, of course, uh, uh, user stories and, and this kind of stuff and how you... It's, it's about shifting the conversation for what needs to be built from a set of requirements to a process of discovery in, the, in its most ideal form. Because then what we're doing is we're discovering together what needs to be built. Because honestly, it's very hard to visualize up front what a system should be like and how to make it so that it's most usable and most valuable to our users. But you know, I'm sure... 
I'm, I'm not sure about your painting capability, but I would say that pretty much everybody very poor, very alive poor. today, I'm very, I'm very poor as well. <laughs> very few of us could actually paint the Mona Lisa. You know, I mean, what Da Vinci did was pretty amazing. I think all of us can recognize how amazing it is, but I certainly couldn't create it myself. And so there's a difference between being able to generate something out of our heads versus to recognize if it suits us. And really, that's what Agile is doing. It's taking the requirements which was generated out of our heads, which is so hard to do, and giving us a feedback loop where we can go to the customer and say, is this what you'd want? Where they can see you know, the start of a, of a feature. And then they can more easily recognize yes or no. It's a simpler question. And so I think what we've tried to do so far in the software movement is do it the hard way. And I'm saying, hey, guys, let's do it the easy way. Why not? You know, Dag, we, we software developers, our job is about automating industry. So, you know, we, we automate different processes. But what we really need to do is automate our process. And I don't mean the process of creating the creative side of software development. Computers are never going to be able to do that. But there's so many... There's so many tools that we could use to help us, you know. That's why I do a lot of, that's why I'm test infected, you know, TDD. And, and when you get into TDD and realize that it's so valuable, Eric Gamma coined this phrase, he calls it test infected. I, you could not pay me enough to do a non-TDD project because I just find it so useful. Yeah, and, David. And we, that, David, sorry, we, we really need to go to the next practice because we have been, already been talking for <laughs> 33 minutes here. So. Oh, okay. I'm so, so sorry. You, I get excited. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I'm. Um, yeah, yeah. We do. We, maybe it would be a very long podcast for, and we have a series of podcasts. Maybe we should have a, a podcast for every practice. Nine podcast <laughs> series. <laughs> If you'll have me, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> so, so the the second practice is building small batches, and for me, that is yes. uh, almost the, the third practice, also with the continuous um, integration, integrate integrate continuously. So exactly, they go together. So building small batches, and I, I promise I'll do it much quicker. Building small batches is really about, like you say. Um, Because smaller is, is easier to work with, it's easier to understand, it's easier to verify. Uh, so smaller batches, you get more feedback more frequently. And if you take those batches to full completion by integrating them as you're building them, then you don't have a lot of work in progress as well. And I think that's really one of the main benefits of building in small batches is taking things to completion. And this is another sort of anti-pattern that I see in a lot of Agile teams or teams that call themselves Agile is they, they do iterations for two weeks or whatever, but at the end of the iteration, it's not fully tested, it's not fully deployable. They just have it sit somewhere in a queue for you know, the QA people to test you know, later. And to me, that is the very essence of Waterfall because we're, we're breaking out those phases again. So the third practice, integrate continuously, I think is absolutely critical. And we're already seeing that this is the year of DevOps and, and uh, continuous delivery. And I think that's really like, if you're wondering, well, what is my next step? You know, we, we kind of do iterations. I would say that practice three is your next step for most organizations. Because when you get the feedback of a build system that gives you feedback, not in, you know, three weeks after QA has tested something, but in three seconds or three minutes, that changes the dynamic of what you do. If That's I, under, really if I understand it correctly, David, so is this the most important practice here if I should choose, choose one? 
Well, it's the most important first practice. First. And it provides the context for the other technical practices. Let's keep going, okay? So the fourth practice, collaborate. And um, I really want to say here that collaboration is a series of techniques just like any other technical practice, that we have to know ways of collaborating. So I talk about many diff different kinds of configurations, not only pairing, but um, mobbing and spiking and swarming. And body. body. So pair program, body program, and mobbing. <laughs> really <works>. Yeah. <laughs> I yes, think that, yes. I think that the third practice or uh, well, the fourth practice was uh, the most personal for me. Uh, one thing was that you say that software is one of the most collab collaborative activities in the world, and that's it's not what you uh, the, the, what, what you often think about software developers. They are introvert. They are sitting in their own office and so on. And another, if I want me be very personal i have always wanted a, a, my own room where i can sit but your discussion here has turned me around <laughs> <laughs> so i think for the good. first time i really want to sit by with other guys oh good good you know it really makes a big difference yeah, sitting sitting next to someone and being able to to work with them the, that saying two heads are better than one is, is more than just a saying. It really helps. And I know being a teacher, and I've trained over 8,000 professional software developers in my career. And being a teacher, there's, there's something powerful about being able to explain something to someone else. It's another level of understanding. So we go through that process when we pair. And also we support each other in doing the right thing. And that's really why managers should get behind pairing. You put in a very hard day's work when you do pair programming, and it's a very satisfying thing as well. It's and something what, that you've got to experience, I think. Yeah, I and, think a lot of people have preconceived notions about what it is. Yeah, and, and exactly. What was that, uh, I talked with my wife about your book, and he said, she said that the pair programming was a really great thing. She didn't oh. like to do that. So, oh, excellent. So, excellent. Uh, I have it's never test, yeah. tested it myself, so... It's pretty easy to start, right? Because you always have a team, right? And it's the one practice that I get the most resistance on, mm. you know, from managers and developers. Yeah, but I the think way to... I'm the guy that you get that resistance from. And the easiest way to, to, uh, to break through that resistance with developers is simply to, sh to have them do it. And, you know, it takes one or two days. And usually the people who are most resistant become the most into it and really want to do it all the time then. Okay, great. So I have a future then. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, so, so the, the, the next practice is more one. about uh, patterns. And you say it's... The next uh, practice, which I call Create Clean Code, and clean is my acronym for five key code qualities. Uh, cohesive, loosely coupled, encapsulated, assertive, and non-redundant. And the reason that I focus on these five core practices are that I found that they're sort of at the foundation of all good software development practices and principles. So I, I would love to discuss, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the principles of software development, but it would take uh, uh, several books to do that. Yeah, I think so. And so I wanted to, in just one chapter, give a context for the rest of the practices, which are all technical practices. And so these five code qualities... I think really, really reflect the other practices. 
that is, when we, imp when we do these other practices, they improve those co-qualities. Uh, clean, I have never heard about that, uh, but solid is my, what I think that many people are working. Do you think that's the same uh, practices? I think it's roughly the same. Solid, solid is um, the, their, their um, principles. So S is for the single responsibility principle. And indeed, it is very much like cohesion. So that's true. O is for the open-closed principle, which is something different. And I think the most important of all the principles for software developers. It means to set up your code in such a way that when you have a new feature, even an unthought of new feature, that it requires maximally adding new code, but minimally changing existing code. So our goal when we do the open-close principle, is to write code in such a way that we don't have to change it very often. And there are ways to do this. And when I ask developers why that's important, they immediately know, is because when we're changing existing code, that's when we're more likely to introduce bugs. So then practice six and seven, I think that's the when you're at... We are all waiting for it. TDD. TDD. <laughs> Test-driven yes. development. Uh, yes. And I think that's uh, your whole book is uh, building up to this, <laughs> I think. I, I very much agree. I think if I were to say what the most high value practice is, it's hard because I think TDD certainly is. However, and, and also AT, ATDD, uh, acceptance test driven development. However, um, you have to have some pieces in place first. You can't just go off and do TDD without understanding what clean code is, without, understand, without doing continuous integration and some of these other things. Um, so these, the other practices sort of build to it, but I agree, TDD, and, and in particular the way I'm talking about TDD, which I think is really different than a lot of people, the way they talk about TDD. I'm talking about TDD as a way of specifying behaviors. And, you know, I think it was the 2013 um, state of Agile reports that said something like 12 or 13 percent of teams are doing TDD, but I think it's far less who are doing it successfully, uh, because there's many many sort of pitfalls that you can fall into when you're first attempting to do TDD. So so since we I know we only have a little time, so I want to just cover the two major pitfalls that I see developers falling into, because I think it's really valuable, um, and it has to do with unit test. So first of all, unit test is not really a test because when you write it the first time, you, you're supposed to write the test before you write the code. So what are you testing? You're not, there's nothing there to test. So it's clearly not a test when you first write it. I think of it more as a hypothesis because we're hypothesizing what the code will do. And I think it's valuable to have a hypothesis before you run an experiment in science. It's valuable to know what you're about to build before you start to build it in software. And that's really what writing the test is all about. So I know a lot of developers say to me, oh, I don't have time to write the test. Do you not have time to think about what it is that you want to do before you actually start to do it? I think it's more efficient to aim before you fire. You know, <laughs> Ready, fire, aim doesn't really work super well. So the, the challenge is, is that we've been taught as developers to jump into implementation. And we have to kind of break that habit. But once we do, we find that writing the test first can be very, very natural. And what I'm saying is in the next practice is really about specifying behaviors with tests. So if we think of tests not as a form of verification, but as a way of specifying the behaviors, which we would do if we're writing our tests first before the behavior, because remember, all the behavior comes from implementing the test.
So if you think of it that way, then we were writing the right number of tests and the right kind of tests. Because you know, the conventional wisdom test until bored is really not good advice because it drives developers to write too many tests. And then the, the, the test base, which is supposed to support us in refactoring, actually becomes a liability. It becomes harder to refactor because we have too many implementation-dependent tests. So I'm understanding a, that distinction, I think, is the key. Yeah, I, I'm a bit surprised that you don't use uh, BDD, behavior-driven yes. design. Yes, I do, and I talk uh, about it. Um, but you, you in, don't in uh, say the, the, the acronym BDD somewhere. Oh, okay. yeah, I, I sort of use the <laughs> ATDD acronym, oh, okay. but it's, it's all the same. same. Okay. And the other way we talk about it is specification by example. So it has many names, you know, but it's, it's basically the same practice. Okay. And you can do it in an automated fashion or you can just, you know, do it in a, in a manual fashion. I, I prefer to automate it then. And so the, next, just... the next practice yeah. is uh, design loss. And the, uh, do you mean the, the architecture up front or the, what do you mean by that? Yeah, no, I don't mean. So there's, there's things that we need to do up front and there are things that we need to or would benefit by postponing. There's a sequence just like in any creative endeavor, you know, even painting, there's a sequence. You know, you do the rough sketch first and then you fill in the, the details and all that. So um, the sequence in software development, what I find most valuable is to do the sort of my low, my kind of low level design once I have my tests in place and I have coverage there so that if I make a mistake, my code, my test will, will tell me that and I can fix it very quickly. So that's the idea of implementing the design last. There's some of those things when we put them off, they actually are easier to deal with because we know more later. So really understanding the sequence in development is important. Mm -hmm. So by design you mean, for example, you have um, um, different layers and so on. Do you mean that kind of architecture? I mean, Oh, uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm implementing something with a big switch statement, but I want some, I want some extensibility later, so I'll refactor that to a strategy pattern instead. Oh, okay, yeah. But I'll do that with my code under test mm. rather than just try to go right to the strategy pattern because it's a little more complicated, a little easier to make a mistake. I would rather do it when I have my tests in place that support me. And then the last practice, uh, practice nine, I think, uh, is really interesting, of course. And there we're talking about refactoring and refactoring legacy code. And I think a, a citation that you have in your book is, do, do it right the second time, not the first time. <laughs> yes. That's my little expression, do it right the second time. We've been told in the past to do it right the first time. You know, but I think doing it right the first time is really the hard way because if you only have one example of something, it's very hard to extract out the concept. We're, we're little inference machines and we're not really good at being able to extract out a concept from just one example. But give us two or more examples and instantly we can see the concept. We can see the similarity between these two things. So if we're not really clear what abstraction to use, don't. You know, that's part of what agile software development says is, you know, don't write code that you don't necessarily need. And if you don't know that you need it right now, maybe just put it off. So very often when I have an, one example of something, I'll, I'll implement it concretely until I get the second example. And that tells me how to build the right abstractions for the problem. So uh, why is uh, this a practice? Is refactoring so important? 
because we're constantly learning and we need to take our understanding and continue to re-imbue that into our code so that our code reflects our current understanding. Great. So uh, we have some minutes left and I think the last <laughs> chapter in your book is the best. Oh. <laughs> So we yes. really we really need to to talk about the last chapter, uh, learning from our legacy, and that's your vision, both of the state, the current state of our business, and what your vision for the future is. I yeah. really like that. So, uh, one thing that was a bit troublesome for me, and why I, what I was thinking about was that you have a citation here that said, the software development community sort of closed down in the 90s. What do you mean yeah, by that? What I, what I meant by that, and, and this was you know, right during the internet boom, was that you know, back in the 80s, you could pick up the phone and talk to any software developer in any company, and they'd be willing to help you, in the, for, by and large, for the most part. And then in the 90s, people sort of got the idea that a lot of their approaches and what they were doing was they were in competitive advantage. So that's what I meant, like people started to close down and they, it wasn't as easy to talk to strangers and share war stories and share successes. Uh, and I think that's changed now, again, uh, especially in the States. I see that a lot of people are sharing information again. Uh, a lot of the big software companies that I work with, they recognize that the better other people and other companies build software, the better for the industry. So I think that's good. So open source and uh, that you can contribute to, to different projects is a good thing that will make us better software developers. Yes. Yes. As a community. Sure. Yeah. So, so it has not closed down forever. It has opened again. Yeah, oh, I, okay. think so. right. I think so. Okay, great, great. So, and that, of course, is my job. My job is to help uh, help people understand how to build better software. And by the way, just in the last few minutes here, I wanted to also mention that not only did I write a book about this, but this is what uh, my obsession in life is. So, I have training courses. I offer Scrum Developer certification. I offer a range of different trainings, and I also offer consulting both in the acceptance side for acceptance testing and also in the continuous delivery side. And you travel all over the world so you can come to Sweden. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I actually haven't gotten to Sweden yet, but the closest I've gotten was uh, professionally was um, Finland. Wow. So that's not very far away. No, it isn't. It's just a big lake between us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or a so, sea, or, or a sea. So, but uh, anyway, now you hear it. Uh, David uh, really want to come to Sweden, and especially in the summer. So, uh, <laughs> it's just to yes. so go to his website and um, mail him or contact him and so on. So, so maybe I can see David this summer. Well, that would be <laughs> wonderful. And uh, in the show notes, can put my URL. It's called To yeah. Be Agile, and that's spelled T O B E. A-G-I-L-E, tobeagile.com. That's my website. And, and uh, by the be, way, I could... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. To be a, plug. Okay, plug, plug, plug. Okay, to, to, get, um, to find out more about my book, Beyond Legacy Code, it's really easy. You can just go to my publisher's website, and I've created a URL that directs you directly to my book's webpage. It's called beyondlegacycode.com. Yeah. So if you go to beyondlegacycode.com, you'll end up on the Pragmatic website. And um, you can read excerpts of the book and see a video about the book, and you can pick up, you can buy the book as well. You can buy it as ebook or a printed version. 
So, David, the last question. How will the future be for us as the industry and as developers? I would, I would love to know myself, <laughs> of course. I can only speculate because I... Uh, well, I what do you think? What, what's the next uh, step? You, you talk about in this chapter about beyond Agile and so on. Yes, yes. So I, I think, and, you know, even though we, we expressed our frustration that the industry is not moving quickly, it's moving really, really quickly compared to everything else in the world. And I think that the next 10 or 20 years are going to be really about consolidating and, and bringing these technical practices so that we can build software that's far more reliable than it is today. And it might be just a 1% increase in reliability um, and, and maintainability. Uh, but when we do that, that's going to give us the context for us to be able to tackle a whole new range of problems. But I don't think we can really come up with and tr truly transcend and, and really address like big issues of AI and other kinds of issues until we understand how to build maintainable code in the first place. And really, that's what this book is about. So I think it's going to be a lot more about you know, bringing the technical practices to bear in software development. Great. Thank you very much, David Bernstein. And I really enjoyed your book and it got me some, my heart pumping again, you know, <laughs> emotions and so on. So I really want to, to do TDD and I will, I will take a new course and work with TDD in Node.js that are my new favorite language and work with Mocha and Chai and all this thing stuff. Because when you worked with TDD and you see the code running uh, very fast, you don't need to do any user interface. You don't need to do anything other. You don't need to have a database. You just have your code and a, a small test runner, and you see your code going from red to green. That's yes. life. Yes. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, Dag. <laughs>